Father, we thank you for the faith that you give to us that is based on the truth of the Word of God and upon the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We thank you for your love and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, as we study the tabernacle and the furnishings of the tabernacle that we see Christ and we see uh, the prophetic uh, portrait of what Christ would do to bring atonement to us all. We're so thankful, Lord, that we don't have to uh, live through uh, sacrifices and all the things that uh, Israel uh, practiced as part of the worship of God, but that we can uh, have the sacrifice which Christ made once and for all, and that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, that we might have grace to help in time of need. We're thankful, Lord, that you have touched our lives and uh, brought us to this point. Lord, be with us now in, in our study this morning. I pray for your special blessing on every Sunday school class and upon the service uh, as it uh, runs concurrently. And we ask that you will be magnified in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you may remember that May 26, which was our last uh, Sunday before we went on our little journey, we began a study of uh, Exodus chapters 25 to 31. Uh, in that passage, you have the instructions that God gave to Moses there on Mount Sinai concerning the construction of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, and then also concerning the establishment of the priesthood with all of its accoutrements. The Israelites had struggled for a year in the wilderness. They had come out of Egypt, they had come into the wilderness of Sinai, and now they were at the base of Mount Sinai there in the southern part of the peninsula. And during that year, they had begun to learn to trust a God that they had nearly forgotten in the 400 years that they were in captivity and resident there in the land of Egypt. When they arrived at the base of Mount Sinai, they came to a place where Moses had encountered God two years before in the Bernie Bush incident. I don't know what Moses told them about that. I, I can hardly imagine him not telling them about the encounter he had there. I mean, again, he did when they were in Egypt, but again. And whether he could even locate the spot or not, I don't know. But here at that same location, God displayed his might and his power in a very, very physical way through the earthquake and, and the fire and the smoke and the lightning and the thunder and all that was associated with what was going on the top of Mount Sinai during those weeks of encounter between God and Israel. Moses was called, you remember, up into that pyrotechnic display. I don't know about you, but when I watch fireworks, I like to be at a distance from them. I don't want to walk into the middle of them. You know. But Moses was called up the mountain. And, and just imagine the faith that man had to be willing to walk into all that was going on there on the top of Mount Sinai. Scripture tells us that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Everything about God is not benign. There are things about God which are very, very dangerous and threatening to the non-believer, to the one who, who what is the, the old phrase we use, uh, 
fools rush in where angels fear to tread, you know. A lot of fools uh, rush into the presence of God or think they are, not recognizing who he really is. But Moses went up into the mountain. Whether he had fear in his heart, we don't know. But he went up there to hear from God. And there God gave him the Decalogue and the corollary uh, laws that we looked at there from Exodus chapter 20 through 24. You remember that one of the most exciting accounts given in this passage was a seal, a seal of God upon Moses as the leader uh, of Israel and as the one whom God had ordained to deliver the word. And let me, let me read that again for us in uh, Exodus chapter 24, this theophany actually, which occurs between verses 9 and 11 of Exodus chapter 24. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. They beheld God, and they ate and drank. They beheld a theophany. They beheld whatever God chose to reveal of himself, whatever form he chose to reveal himself. It's not explained, and we talked about that in a little bit of detail uh, a few weeks back. But this was a seal. Those 70 Israel, elders of Israel, plus Nadab and Abihu and, and, and Joshua, were able to see a manifestation of God which put the stamp of authority, the imprimatur, if you will, upon Moses as God's spokesman. It was very important because Moses was going to be telling them some pretty strong things, as he already has in the Decalogue. The last Sunday we were together, uh, before we had our little uh, journey to uh, Europe, we began to look at the furnishings of the tabernacle in chapter 25 of Exodus, starting with the Ark of the Covenant. And, and for the sake of continuity, I'd like to pick up again with the beginning of chapter 25 and just uh, quickly review over this. Let's read the first uh, nine verses of chapter 25 to begin with. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. From every man whose heart moves you, you shall raise a contribution. And this is the contribution which you are to raise from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet material, fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, porpoise skins, acacia wood, oil for lighting, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and setting stones for the ephod and for the breastplate, breastpiece. And let them construct a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so shall you construct it. So God is making it very clear, this is his blueprint for the house in which he is to be worshipped, the house where he is going to put his name. And God went so far as to actually describe and give the print, the blueprints, for the furniture within it. Every single piece of furniture, God said, this is what it's to be look like, is to look like, this is what it's to be made of, and this is how it's to be used, you know. 
it's, it's a very interesting uh, study as we go down through here. So let's um, read on. We, eight weeks ago, got to this point. Verse 10. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide, one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out. You shall overlay it. You shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet. And the two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark and carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long, one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give to you. And there, there I will meet you, with you. And above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all I will give you in the commandment for the sons of Israel. This was to be the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Therefore, it was the first piece of furniture that God described. And, you know, from those statistics given there, it wasn't a very big object, obviously, here. You know, sometimes it's been portrayed as, as this huge thing, you know, and with the, with the uh, wings of the, uh, of the cherubim reaching clear to the top of the uh, tabernacle. It, it, it wasn't that big, really. Our God is big. Our God is infinite. But he doesn't need big things to impress him or to impress us. <laughs> In fact, the whole tabernacle isn't really very big. Compare that to pagan temples. Those of you who were in the first service in, or remember what I mentioned last week, this altar of Zeus, which is in um, the uh, museum there at Pergamum, literally is so big that our sanctuary in there is not big enough to hold it. It is so long and so high that the sanctuary in there won't even, wouldn't even actually hold it. It would be too long for the sanctuary. High, it might be high enough. Well, I don't know. It was pretty tall. Well, someday, if we, uh, if we have an opportunity to look at some pictures, I'll show you pictures of it. But, I mean, the, the pagans impress their gods with huge monuments. You know, the ziggurats, which reach hundreds of feet into the sky, and gigantic temples. I mean, go down to Central America and look at the big pyramids there with their, their temples up on top. Is God impressed with big things? You know? God wasn't terribly impressed with Goliath. So, so many of the features here are actually... They're actually quite small. I, I mentioned uh, in our last lesson that the word ark, which we use to, to refer to this thing, uh, comes from the Latin Vulgate translation of uh, the scripture. Uh, the Latin Vulgate, which was pretty well put together by Jerome about 1500 or 1600 years ago, 
translates the Hebrew word aran, which means chest, uh, into the Latin word arca, which also means chest. So we're talking about a chest here, which euphemistically referred to here as an ark. Uh, and if we use the standard minimal cubit, uh, this ark was only 45 inches long. It was only 27 inches wide and 27 inches high. So, you know, this is a fairly small structure. Considering, in fact, it had to be carted from place to place, of course, it uh, didn't need to be very big. The uh, King James Version of Scripture, if you happen to have that, notice that it doesn't say acacia wood. It says shatim wood, which translates a Hebrew word, which is very, very similar to that. But most believe that it refers to the acacia tree, which was a very common tree found in the Sinai Peninsula. It's still found there. And throughout all these years, uh, thousands of years, still is furniture made from the wood of the acacia tree. It's kind of a low, uh, shrubby type tree, very dense wood, uh, which apparently was what was primarily available out there in the Sinai Peninsula. They, you know, they didn't have access to redwood or Douglas fir or any of the stuff we have here. I mean, they're out in the desert. So they had to make it from what was available to them. What's fascinating here is the fact that the chest was to be covered with gold. It was made out of wood, but then it was to be sheeted with gold all around. The legs, the whole thing was to be sheeted with gold. And it was to be a gold molding all around the top of this, uh, of this box. And to this gold molding would be fastened the four rings, which were of gold, attached on the four corners of this, through which the poles would be placed by which this thing was to be carried. It was always to be carried by the priests with poles stuck through these rings. That was the only way by which the ark was ever to be moved. The poles, as scripture says, were to be made out of acacia wood, and they too were to be sheeted with gold. It must have been a pretty gl a glistening thing to look at all of this. And, and to me, I, I've never figured this out. I've never messed with gold. <laughs> never had much of it to mess with. But <laughs> the idea of, of sheeting, I, I don't know how they do it, especially back uh, 4,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, when uh, it talks about hammering it. I guess artisans can hammer gold out very, very thin and, and make it look very beautiful. But to me, I always thought hey, it must have looked pretty denty and you know, kind of wavery and all this kind of stuff. But I'm sure they had ways of fastening it on there so it looked smooth and, and beautiful. Once the ark was consecrated by God, once it had been completed and was ready to go and was consecrated, it was never again to be touched by human hands except, of course, at the point at which anything that God ordered to be placed in it would be placed in it later. Other than that, it was never to be touched with human hands. This was an explicit instruction by God concerning the use of the ark. Now, God is very explicit about how we are to obey him and how we are to serve him. I, I read this, but I think it's important for us to look at it again, and, and some of you may not have been here that uh, Sunday, which we covered it anyway. Let's go back to 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. This illustrates the peril of doing God's work with human ingenuity rather than God's direction. David, of course, was a gung-ho king for God. And, and David had captured the city of Jerusalem. 
David had been consecrated king of Israel in Hebron. But Hebron is way down the south of Judea. That's no place to have the capital of the country. So the capital needed to be somewhat further north. And of course, all of the cities would have liked to have been the capital. It's hard to establish a capital in an already established country. You know, that's why we built Washington, D.C., you know, because they were able to build a, a city which had not been in existence before. You know, New York was our first capital. But, uh, you know, not everybody thought New York ought to be the capital, especially the Southerners. And, and then Philadelphia for a little while. And, and then they moved it into the South, really, didn't they? <laughs> moved the American capital into the South. Well, David needed a capital which could be called his. Now, Jerusalem had been conquered earlier, but apparently had been lost back to the uh, Canaanites. And so during his time, Jerusalem was recaptured from the Jebusites by, by David. And that's why it's called the city of David, because he conquered the city and he made it his capital. Well, he wanted it to be the center where God was worshipped too. And so David wanted to move the ark to Jerusalem. Now David, verse 1, again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah, that is Kiriath Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name Yahweh, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out towards the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. And the place is called Perez Uzzah, that is, outburst against Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. David had a right desire. Bring the ark into Jerusalem. He wanted to be the capital, not only politically, but the capital spiritually. And that was fine. The ark had been in place, uh, place from place to place over the years prior to this because the tabernacle was a movable structure. But the ark had been lost to Israel during a battle against the Philistines many, many, many years before, during the high priesthood of Eli. The Philistines had taken the ark away. They, they thought, the Israelites thought, take the ark out and the enemy will be vanquished. God allowed the ark of the covenant to be captured by the enemy. And Israel could not believe it. 
You remember the story, Eli, we're told when he heard that his two sons had died in the battle, that was bad news. But when he heard that the ark had been taken, the scripture says he fell off his bench and broke his neck and died. Well, the ark was a curse to the Philistines. Everywhere they took it, it wrought destruction and, and, and it knocked their gods down and <laughs> Dagon kept breaking his head off. So they sent it back to Israel. And there it stayed in Kiriath-Jerim for years and years and years. But David wanted it in Jerusalem. So he attempted to bring it to Jerusalem. But he was not obedient to the law. It had been explicitly stated how that ark was to be carried. And so what does he do? He puts it on a cart and has this cart drawn by oxen, thumpity thump, bumpity bump over the, you know, they didn't have super highways or autobahns, you know, you just back trails. Bring this thing uh, towards you. And, you know, if you've ever been to Israel, I mean, it is the rockiest land you've ever seen. And it's a hilly land. And so, you know, what do you expect? And so as the ark is being taken along there, Uzzah and Ohio are the two sons of Abinadab, whose, whose house had been blessed by the presence of the ark, are going along with it. And, and it starts to tip over. It looks like it's going to tip over. So natural reaction, right? Uzzah, oh, oh, what would you do if you were, something was about to fall out of a cart and you could hold it up? It, wasn't that, it was not like a refrigerator or anything, you know? Hold the thing. It was just a natural reaction. But Scripture says that God killed Uzzah for his irreverence because no one was to touch the Ark of the Covenant. It was holy. It was committed unto God. It was dedicated unto God. And yet he dared to touch the Ark. And he died. And, and David... I mean, you, you can understand David, couldn't you? God, I'm bringing this to Jerusalem so we can worship you rightly here. And you fry this guy simply because he tried to keep him from being busted. That's not fair. David was really, really upset. So he parked the, <laughs> the ark. He didn't want to take it any further. It was too dangerous. So he parks the ark there in Obed-Edom's house. And it says for three months it blessed Obed-Edom. Well, it didn't. God blessed Obed-Edom being willing to house the Ark of the Covenant. Did David learn a lesson? Well, we, one thing we know about David is that David did some pretty stupid things, but David seemed to learn from his mistakes. Uh, and, and he even tells about them and writes about them, as we know in many of the Psalms. So let me uh, read David's reaction later from 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Yeah, it's 1 Chronicles if it says Second Chronicles on your study guide, it's wrong. First Chronicles chapter 15. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark and to minister to him forever. Verse 13. Because you did not carry it at first... The Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles thereon, as Moses commanded, according to the word of the Lord. I think one of the things that we have to learn more than anything else is that God does not give us ten suggestions 
God does not just give us general guidelines. God gives us specifically how we are to serve Him, how we are to worship Him, how we are to love Him, uh, how we, we manifest the reality of our faith by walking in obedience to Him. Now, none of us does it perfectly, of course, but that's to be our goal. The problem we face is there is a lazy attitude in the Christian church uh, about worshiping God. There's a kind of an I'll do it my way attitude. Remember Cain? Of course we all remember Cain. God said, this is how you are to sacrifice to me. Abel did it. Cain said, why should I have to do it that way? As long as I make a sacrifice, God should be happy. So he brings fruit and grain stuff instead of sacrificing a lamb. And, and, and God tells him, hey, you have not been obedient to my word. Your heart is not right. You're arrogant. You're proud. Today we know, and we saw this in Europe, many, many people feel that if there is a heaven, if there even is an afterlife, which most don't believe, I'll get to heaven my way. You know, as long as I'm not a mass murderer, as long as I'm not you know, filming pornography and sending it across the nation, God will accept me. Upon what basis is such a determination made? Well, as you know, in our pluralistic society in which we live today, um, the concept of there being only one way by which we can know and love God and serve Him is offensive. That's why we as evangelicals, if we stick to the belief that there's only one way by which we can achieve eternal life, and that is through faith and obedience, faith in and obedience to Jesus Christ, we are basically considered bigots. Narrow-minded, rightist bigots. You know, that's, that's what we become. I, I wonder what they're going to do about professing their pluralism when they stand before God in the great white throne judgment. But God! We, we were certain that uh, Buddhism was right and, and Muhammad was right. I mean, just as long as we were you know, reasonably good guys, we, we should... Well, I don't know if they will make any such statements. I think most will stand absolutely speechless before the almighty throne of God, deeply convicted in their hearts of the reality of truth. That was one of the saddest aspects of our ministry in Europe is we see the United States in a few decades unless God really, really moves on this country. We're headed in that direction. I mean, you're, you're talking about people over there who have heard the name of God and Jesus Christ, but it means absolutely nothing to them. And as I mentioned, the churches are nothing but monuments, just big monuments. Hardly anybody has any real faith in Christ, and it's really tragic. And of course, many of them don't see any need because they have the necessities of this life. And atheism and agnosticism are extremely strong in Europe, and so is hedonism, just you know, living for the joy of living in, in the flesh. And I don't think we're really that far away from this in America today. The only thing that stands between us and that is the fact that the evangelical church still is large and, and strong in America and that there are millions who are, are part of that. But I can see the church becoming more and more soft and cold, even the evangelical church in its ways, unless God works a miracle. And of course, revival, I, I mentioned in, in church that we need to pray for revival in Europe because Reformation was born in Europe. You know, Ulrich Zwingli thundered from the church there, the Gross Munster Church there in, in Zurich, and Calvin from the uh, St. Peter's Church there in Geneva. And 
we visited Wittenberg where Luther preached and where the 95 theses were nailed to the church door. It's all dark, cold. You know, it's just stones today. There's no life there. In the Lutheran Church, no life in the Reformed Church. The Reformed Church, the Lutheran Church are as dead as the Catholic Church all over Europe. I mean, there's more life in the Catholic Church here than there is over there in Europe by far. And it's, it's really sad. And that's, I think, what makes ministry in Europe so hard because they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And so it's just a cultural thing. The ark was a special chest in which special things were to be placed. But only one thing that was to be in the ark of the, of the covenant is mentioned here in, in this particular passage that we read. And that is the testimony, i.e. the uh, Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. That was placed in there. Later on, the, the Aaron's rod that budded and oh, forgotten other things will, will be put inside there, uh, inside the chest. Manna and so forth. But at this time, just the Ark of the Testimony is mentioned. Now, you remember I read here that the lid of the chest was to be made of pure gold. I mean, there was a wooden lid, but it was to, on top of it was to be placed this pure gold lid. The whole lid was out of solid gold, and both of the cherubim on the two ends, it was all to be made out of one piece of gold. How would you like to be the craftsman? Somebody gives you a lump of gold here and says, all right, I want you to make a 45-inch long mercy seat with two gleaming cherubim with their wings sweeping up over the mercy seat. <laughs> I just look at them and say, yeah, right. But I think God gave to the craftsman the ability, the ingenuity, to do this. In fact, later on, when in another passage, when it talks about the actual construction of the tabernacle, it says that God gave the, uh, the foreman, the men who were directing the uh, artisans in this, he gave them special insight and ability uh, to do the work that had to be done. I mean, remember, these people were bricklayers, <laughs> mud bricklayers from Egypt. They'd been putting mud and straw together and drying it and building stuff out of this. I mean, that'd been their basic occupation. So how do they know how to beat gold into fine objects? Well, God gave them the ability to do that. And this structure on top is called the mercy seat. In Hebrew, the kaporeth, which means place of propitiatory atonement. Right. Place of propitiatory atonement. Well, obviously, that simply refers to the substitutionary blood that would be given to cover sin, to avert punishment, that would be shed and placed on the mercy seat. And on both ends, these cherubim were to be formed, each one facing each other, with the wings sweeping up over the back and over towards the other one, to form an arch over the top of the mercy seat. I don't know how many of you saw the film Raiders of a Lost Ark, but do you remember what it looked like? Didn't look like that. <laughs> the little cherubim had swept back wings, you know, looked like the old Pontiac symbol that used to be in the front of the old Pontiacs, you know. <laughs> how, how did these guys know what a cherubim looked like? This is the first time in Scripture since the cherubim were placed at the Garden of Eden entrance with a flaming sword to keep Adam and Eve out. This is the first time cherubim are mentioned. How in the world do these guys know what a cherubim look like? Make a cherubim. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you say. I think God had to reveal to them the form that, that they had to, 
to make and showed them the way and enabled their hands and gave them the vision and the plan uh, so that they were able to make these cherubim uh, features on the two ends of the mercy seat. All we know from this passage is that the cherubim had faces and that they had wings. 900 years later, Ezekiel would have a vision. You certainly remember it from your readings of Ezekiel because it starts out that way. First chapter of Ezekiel, if I can find Ezekiel here. Beginning at verse 4 of chapter 1 of Ezekiel. As I looked, behold, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually and a bright light around it, and in its midst something like glowing metal in the midst of the fire. And within it were figures resembling four living beings. This was their appearance. They had human form. Each of them had four, wing, four faces and four wings. And their legs were straight, and their feet were like calves' hooves, and they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings on their four sides were human hands. As for the faces and the wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man, all four, the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above each, above, each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. Okay. Sit down with your little computer and try to replicate this little vision, you know. Various artistic attempts have been made. What is a cherubim? Uh, why is it described with four faces? Is it purely symbolic? Did Ezekiel actually see a figure or is it was just a symbol? Well, arguments can be made about all of these things, but certainly there was a solid gold cherubim made on each end of the mercy seat, and it represented this, this angelic being, uh, probably the highest and most powerful of all the angelic beings, because the scripture tells us that Satan was the anointed cherub that covers, seeming the, to be the highest of all, the, even of the cherubim. According to verse 22, it would be this place, right above the mercy seat and under the arch of the wings, that God would speak to Israel. Let me just read this verse at the end of the seventh chapter of uh, Numbers. Numbers chapter 7, verse 89. Now when Moses went into the tent of the meeting to speak with God, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat, that was on the Ark of the Testimony from between the two cherubim, so he spoke to him. So as Moses went in there, the voice came from the center, the space above the mercy seat and under the arch of the wings. The voice of God came forth from that particular location. It seems like a kind of a miniature representation of the throne that Ezekiel describes there. It's almost as if God took his throne and, and, and blew it down to a tiny little version here, a little model of some sort, uh, which could then be the center from which he would minister to Israel. God spoke from the mercy seat, but his glory radiated throughout the tabernacle. Interestingly enough, he did not live on top of the mercy seat, and he did not live in the tabernacle. Solomon understood this, Solomon later built a temple, as you know, 
And uh, Solomon, in his great dedicatory prayer, I'll just turn there quickly and, and read the verse from 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18, where Solomon is praying and he says, But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Solomon knew that God didn't live in the temple. God didn't live in the tabernacle. I mean, God was, fills the whole universe. But God chose to place his name there, as we read in the earlier passage. This is where the name was located. Yahweh was located there above the mercy seat between the cherubim. It was the physical point of contact between God and man. You and I need a touchstone some point of contact with God. That's why Jesus Christ came down and became a man. He became flesh, that he might dwell among us and that we might have this touchstone of faith based on the reality of God, Emmanuel, God of God with us. God's glory filled the entire tabernacle. In fact, we'll be getting to this when we, when we come to the end of the book of Exodus. At the end of Exodus, we, we read these verses in chapter 40, verse 34. This is after the tabernacle has been completed and dedicated. And the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The significance of the Ark of the Covenant cannot be underestimated or should not be underestimated. God was enthroned above the cherubim. Under the mercy seat was housed the law. The Decalogue was housed under the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place where mankind who failed to keep the law which was in the Ark met the God of the law who was enthroned above the mercy seat. It was there that God met his people. That mercy which was given to these people who didn't and couldn't keep the law was given to them because God is mercy. And it was made available through the sacrifice which the high priest would make on the day known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. For our last scripture this morning, I'd like to read from Leviticus chapter 16, verse 11. Then Aaron shall offer the bull of sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make atonement for himself and for his household. And he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire, from upon the altar before the Lord, and two hands full, handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, lest he die. Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 29. And this shall be a permanent statute for you. 
In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. To us, the Day of Atonement is now every day. It's the day, of course, that Christ died. It's the day that he rose from the grave. It is every day in our lives. And uh, Dr. Walmark uh, taught you from Hebrews. And let me read one of the passages, which I'm, I know he emphasized from Hebrews chapter 4, the final verses of that chapter. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, in effect, to the mercy seat, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The mercy seat was a great symbol of what God was doing for his people. And we are the ultimate recipients of Jesus Christ's sacrifice, which provided a blood atonement that never had to be repeated by the sacrifice of another bull or goat or ram or anything else. And we can be so truly grateful for that. Next week, we'll look at the, sh the table of the bread and uh, at the menorah, the lampstand that was there in the tabernacle.